The Cavi Report was produced and recorded on the traditional lands of the Quiquitlam and Sawut First Nations. It's September 9th, 2021, and there are 401 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Cambie Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a short and sweet episode for you today, as you can probably tell from our land acknowledgement. I am not in Vancouver at the moment. I am on picturesque Pender Island, where I am vacationing. But I don't want you to be left without all the intriguing and, well, just stupid news coming out of Vancouver. Yeah, August was a bit of a quiet month municipally. So we took like an unplanned vacation from the podcast. I took a week and a bit off to fly around the country and then just not a lot was happening until coyotes kept attacking children and runners. Yep. And then the mayor of Surrey may or may not have gotten run over by a car. Why don't we dive right into things? Coyotes in Stanley Park. So there have been over 45 attacks right now by coyotes in Stanley Park. Canada, of course, being the only nation where a fatal coyote attack has occurred on a human. Admittedly happened in Cape Breton, but it is still something to be aware of. And because of a particular attack in which a two-year-old and a five-year-old were bitten by coyotes, a plan has been put in place to uh, cull all of them in Stanley yeah, Park. The- Plan comes from the provincial government's conservation service within the Ministry of Forestry. As far as I can tell, the park board's kind of been sitting on their hands through this, as is what they do. I think they had started to think about doing some consultations and some hearings on the coyote problem. And then the province said, fuck this, we're just going to kill all the coyotes. Yeah, I think that's basically what's happened. And I think that's probably the best course of action We should probably dial back uh, a moment and figure out how we got here. So why are the coyotes attacking so many people? No one knows exactly. The best we can tell, and we tried to reach out to a few experts, and thanks to the UBC experts and other biologists and animal, urban wildlife specialists who are out there speaking out on Twitter, and we'll throw some links in the show notes. Coyotes are generally a standoffish kind of creature. They don't like interacting with humans, but like any animal, they can become habituated to feeding. So if they get directly fed by people or if they find scraps that are left on the ground near people, they can lose that natural fear of people and get more aggressive and get in closer. And that's what people seem to think is happening here. So someone is either direct, people are either directly feeding coyotes, which don't do that, that's bad. Or too much food has been left around yeah, that they not used to. And, and my suspicion is that it is, in fact, people feeding them, given the chatter that's been going on amongst biologists on Twitter. Uh, the BC Conservation Officers euthanized one coyote uh, after shaking a box of food at it, and then it walked right up to the conservation officers, somewhat unfortunately for that coyote, but... Basically what happened is we broke the coyotes as a result of people who 
apparently like coyotes, feeding them too much. Now all the coyotes have to die. So there's a big debate happening, right? There's competing petitions. One was sponsored by prominent political <laughs> activists who we've talked about, I think on this show and on Politicoast a few times, Bill Thielman, people around Metro Vancouver who are in politics will know that name. He was prominent for being on the anti-HST petition. He was prominent on the anti-pro-rep petition. Pretty much any populist petition type thing he likes to get involved in, usually on the side that has the least evidence. His personal pet peeves I like to watch for each year are killing pit bulls because they're too aggressive, which is not backed up by most dog scientists, not mandating the flu vaccine for public health care workers. Oh, and I forgot. Oh, and proportional representation. He just hates that because the Nazis will win and his preferred party, the NDP, will only form government under the current system when the right splits. It's weird that he doesn't like pro-rep, especially as a former NDP. Yeah, some of his some of his positions are a little off the wall. Unfortunately, this appears to be one of the ones where a stop clock appears to be right twice a day. While he has been very strident and vocal in his criticism of the existence of the coyotes, the issue itself does appear to demand the extirpation of coyotes from Stanley Park because they have habituated to feeding. This so is the- particularly interesting because like, a ra- there's a raccoon biologist working with urban wildlife that has spoken about how there has been excessive feeding or or Vancouver has been particularly bad for feeding behaviors of its citizens. This is likely the cause of the coyote problem that has been going on since December of last year. Yeah. And it, we're in a frustrated situation because there's not a lot of good options here, right? Coyotes can't just be relocated. They're a very territorial animal, so they'll get attacked by others and outcompeted if you just move them or relocate them. We need to make sure that people's behavior changes because, you know, you can't just train these coyotes to stop feeding off people. So we do need to get rid of these coyotes, but more coyotes will come in. That's just what they do. There will be a need for a predator in Stanley Park of some kind. We don't want wolves or wolverines or bears in there. So coyotes are a pretty natural yeah, bunny eater. And, and I mean, one thing that is like very unfortunate about this is that like culling is never going to be the end all and be all of solutions in this particular problem. It is going to have to be a multifaceted approach. From an urban planning perspective, street furniture is going to be an important part of this. There should be coyote proofing or animal proofing on any kind of food disposal or uh, garbage disposal places. Coyotes can feast off of our garbage and that starts the habituation process that teaches coyotes that approaching humans for food is a viable way to get sustenance. Yeah, I'm out here in Coquitlam now, right? And in the Tri-Cities and black bears wandering the neighborhood is a story that gets covered every week because it's either the same bear or one or another wandering through the suburbs looking for people's compost and garbage bins that aren't properly secured and latched up. So all the compost bins out here have little clips that you need to keep on the lid and they recommend making sure you pull those off the street and keep them out of the way and don't put like raw meat in your compost until it's compost day. There's a lot of effort to 
educate the public out here, especially the homeowning public, to keep bears from getting habituated to that kind of feeding. Like they'll still wander the neighborhood, but no one wants to see bears killed. And so people need to behave better when we're going to coexist. There has been kind of a, a, I think, unfortunate backlash or scapegoating of homeless populations in Stanley Park that has come along with this particular issue. Some people have suggested that the coyotes are acting strangely because they have been ingesting opioids that have been left around. And well, I think Mr. Kielman is not particularly cogent. One of his more salient points that people who are using drugs are not particularly likely to be leaving them around or feeding them to coyotes just for kicks. Yeah, they tend to be a pretty hot commodity and it's a valuable resource. You don't just throw away your drugs. It's a bizarre claims. Like, so the best, most charitable, I don't know why I'm being charitable here, but approach to this argument would be to say, because the city and the park board have pushed unhoused people's tent cities out of Oppenheimer Park, out of Strathcona Park, and most recently out of Crab Park in this past week, they're being pushed into Stanley Park. And so while there is sort of a traditional unhoused type of people in Stanley Park that's very different, I've been told, than the like average whatever average here means, kind of person who's living in a tent in one of the other city parks, people who are deep in Stanley Park who you'd never see. I don't think they're feeding coyotes because they've been living there for quite a long time. This is a very, very recent problem. But there's this idea that maybe tent cities are starting to pop up in Stanley Park and those are creating the conditions. But these are being asserted without any evidence at all. It's just like, we don't even have evidence there are tent cities in Stanley Park, as far as I know. No, and I, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that. And it, it appears to just be a scapegoat a situation where vulnerable population is being used to deflect blame against what has effectively become a systemic and societal problem. We are feeding the coyotes, and so we have effectively created problem coyotes. It's no individual person's fault. It's everyone's fault. And now we have a suite of options that are available to us, none of which are particularly palatable. The one thing I'll note is the way conservation is going about this is not leaving poison out. They're setting up humane traps to catch the coyotes so that they can euthanize them when they find them using, I presume, an injection. And I think this is important to note because anytime you're trying to do a call like this, you risk knock-on effects. Like I grew up on the farm and you would try to get gophers with poison. And I think my dad had to buy someone's dead horse one time because the strychnine they put out in his field for the gophers the horse got into, that was unfortunate and sad. And so you want to make sure that only the animals you want to kill die in these kind of situations. Yeah. It would be tragic if we exacerbated this problem and had spillover effects. One of the major criticisms against the cull is that there will be rebound breeding. This is probably true. There's also a suggestion that new colonizing coyotes uh, coming into the area are going to be among the bolder, if not more aggressive, but definitely bolder animals of the general population. Uh, and so they're going to be more likely to advance up to, to people or go looking in places where you wouldn't naturally expect to find 
uh, coyote prey, i.e. human settlements or human garbage cans or that, that kind of thing. So again, it has to be a multifaceted solution. The keystone of which is stop feeding the coyotes. One of the interesting political angles that came in here, and I'm just scrolling through his Twitter to see if he actually tweeted something or if I'm just like remembering people tagging him. And then he definitely liked some tweets where he was tagged is Ken Sim and the idea that he would abolish the park board came up, at least in some of the replies when I was talking about this on Twitter. And someone compared him to, well, if Ken Sim abolishes the park board, he must be roadrunner to the Stanley Park Wiley Coyotes. And he liked that reply. So <laughs> there, there is, I guess, the idea here that the park board's ineffectiveness to deal with this issue could maybe be transferred to city council, who we are very confident could deal with a difficult and <laughs> systemic problem <laughs> quickly. <laughs> oh, city council. You've become your own punchline. I don't even need to expand on that joke. It's the city council can't do it. However, park board has uh, fallen down on the job. And so the province did have to step in. People need to stop feeding coyotes. Let me just add one more thing. The most prominent attack was this child, which happened at night, actually. It was something really weird. Like the child who was out with their parents was out in Stanley Park at like midnight or something when that attack occurred. Like... It's very confusing why this kid was in the park at that hour. Like, Park Board did manage to close the park. Uh, it's closed in after dark now, so mm-hmm. that to reduce those possible incidents. But there were a couple like weird flags in some of the stories. Not to say anyone was lying or doing anything nefarious, but it was just like, why are there kids out at that hour? I'm not proposing that we lock all children down at night, obviously, but just that kid should have been in bed i feel like yeah probably don't don't take your kids out to a forest after dark uh, although when, when or you, if say, you do keep them within like arm's length when you when you say forest I, I think it kind of belies part of the problem because stanley park is a managed urban space like it is wild ish but it's not wild and so it's not a place that we can like effectively rewild as in bringing bears or cougars too. So we do have a responsibility to manage the creatures within that park to the best of our abilities. And that does mean protecting people from them. We should also protect people from the mayor of Surrey or protect the mayor of Surrey from the people of Surrey. This story is so stupid. So an altercation outside of the Save on Food saw Doug McCallan possibly get his foot run over by a car while disputing with some of the canvassers who are collecting signatures for the Recall and Initiative Act petition to trigger a referendum on the issue of Surrey policing. So, so much to break down. <laughs> We've talked about before Surrey wants to get rid of its RCMP and have a municipal police force. There's good arguments for that. There's bad arguments for that, which are mostly around Doug McCallum bungling it, and it will cost more because it won't get the subsidy from the feds. But Surrey is the largest municipality in Canada with an RCMP detachment. And so there's pretty good arguments that they should have more local control over their policing. Yes. And and I think that in general, I am supportive of the idea of, of Surrey having its own separate police force. It, like, as you say, pretty unusual that a city of Surrey's size 
has a, a RCMP detachment. There are some people who are for some reasons, none of which I found particularly cogent, to be honest, very opposed to having the RCMP replaced as the police force in Surrey. And what I find amusing about this is it ties back to the previous episode, because one of the voices behind the petition initiative here is Bill Thielman again. Uh, a noted Point Grey Vancouver resident has very strong opinions about Surrey policing and who yeah. should be doing it. I mean, I, I will, I will uh, note that we are being a little bit hypocritical being residents of Vancouver and Cookville, <laughs> but it is something that like he does like getting his fingers in the pot. So the petitioners are outside this save on foods in Surrey. And in their words, they have permission from the store owner to have a tent outside and be collecting signatures as you do when you're trying to do a petition. Doug McCallum allegedly spoke with the manager of the store saying they shouldn't be doing that. It's private property be neutral or something like that. There is differing accounts of who started the argument. The petitioners say Doug McCallum came up to them belligerent and yelling at them. McCallum says they started arguing with him. These all feel like very angry people. Yeah, they all are. And I think that maybe it's, it's useful to take a step back and see what exactly the Recall Initiative Act petition is trying to do. A Recall and Initiative Act petition normally requires 10% of people in all 87 BC ridings in order to trigger a referendum. Now, as you might expect, people in Terrace and Prince Rupert are not going to give two shits about whether or not Surrey has a RCMP police force or a Surrey-specific police force. And so the petitioners have decided that they're going to be focusing exclusively on Surrey ridings in order to try and, while not meeting the letter of the law, getting the provincial government to force a referendum on Surrey that would overrule city council's decision to proceed with a Surrey-specific police force. Yeah, and I think they have like a moral case that if 10% of Surreyites no. sign this thing, anyway. Surrey voters, that maybe it should go ahead. Neither of us are big fans of referendums, especially on charged and complex issues such as local policing or anything. I think that referenda should be restricted to Canadian Idol and that's about it. So they're trying, but they're trying to do this and neither of us would go and yell at them for trying to do it, even if we think it's ridiculous. So what gets me is McCallum comes out of this altercation alleging that his foot got ran over by one of the cars of one of the protesters, I guess, mm. which I find funny because he's alleging a pro RCMP assaulted him. And now the RCMP of Surrey have opened an investigation into this claim. And it's not like the RCMP don't have a horse in this fight. It's hard to run just someone's foot over. I, I want to say like, it's hard to run just their foot over without running the rest of them over. So I am very curious as to what the fuck happened outside that save on shoots. You think we'd have a picture of his broken foot or like him in hospital or, or anything. Like some indication that his foot was actually broken, like it being in a cast or something. 
cars are heavy and feet are not that strong. It, it is, I, I think, stretching the bounds of integrity, perhaps, that statement by Mayor McAuliffe. Yeah, so it's one of those situations I don't like anyone particularly involved. Also on Twitter, people who are big fans of Bob Mackin were getting in replies to journalists being like, he broke this story, why aren't you bringing him up? And it's like, because no journalist respects Bob Mackin because he's an asshole. Yep, that is uh, that is what has happened. So no one has covered their self in glory, in particular in this case in Surrey. It is absolutely bananas. So let's move on. As previously mentioned, this week the park board has sought to remove the tents that had been set up in Crab Park next to the Port of Vancouver property. Oh, I guess it's technically Port of Vancouver property adjacent to Crab Park. I've passed this a couple times when driving to actually get my vaccine because I come mm -hmm. along that bit on road Alexander, against the water. Or not, yeah. not Alexander, it's the the by, the downtown connector. Yeah, that secret road that's nice mm -hmm. and quiet usually. You know, it's unfortunate to see, and this is the third major park clearing now. There was about 45 people who refused to leave, and Park Board is saying that housing options have been made available but they had until this morning to actually vacate the park. And after that, I guess they're just going to start tearing down people's property. Yeah, I, I would like them to be a little more clear on what they mean by housing options were made available. Number one, I don't trust that kind of passive construction of a sentence that always seems like someone is trying to bullshit me. Two, uh, like, well, while it is like absolutely imperative that we remember that the number one way to cure people of being homeless is to give them a home. Giving them just any home is not necessarily something that like, if people aren't going to feel safe in their new accommodations, they're not going to move into them. And so people need to be made to feel safe, need to be made to feel as if their accommodations aren't going to jeopardize their community or, or livelihood or whatever is going on in their lives. Yeah, it is. all of your connections are built around that part of Railtown, that part of the downtown east side, and you're told, oh, here's a house near Joyce Skytrain where you can be set up. It's like, it's displacing someone from their connection, from their community, from their social support networks. And so these things need to be done carefully, thoroughly, and in deep consultation with those being affected and not just... And with here's compassion, a, too. Like yeah. it's, it's frustrating that this continues to have to happen. think, unfortunately, the only way that is going to resolve itself is going to be a massive injection of money, ideally at the federal level, because the abdication of responsibility by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has been, since the 1990s, absolutely horrendous. They should be building homes for people. We should be building homes on a much larger scale. Which is a good reminder to vote either this weekend in the advance polls or on September 20th. Yes. Yes, it is. Federally. In other news, the new Patilla Bridge is under construction. Crews have begun working on the early stages of the Patilla Bridge replacement project. This project is expected to cost $1.377 billion. It'll probably end up being more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is going to construct a new cable-stayed bridge that will have four lanes and 
hoping to open in 2023. Uh, apparently 2024 is looking more realistic. This is long overdue in terms of crossings in the lower mainland that have needed desperate attention. This is pretty near the top of the list. Like I know the George Massey Tunnel replacement was also just announced as a big, expensive, expanded tunnel, but less expensive than the Christy Clark Mega Bridge project mm -hmm. versus, which also needs a lot of work, but wasn't like about to fall down in a light breeze kind <laughs> of situation. Yeah. Speaking of uh, attacks on the mayor of Surrey, the Patillo Bridge was, I believe, the bridge that attacked former mayor Linda Hepner with a chunk of falling concrete. Yeah, it's also caught fire a few times. Like, it's an 80-year-old bridge. It's not fun to drive if you've done it because it's ridiculously narrow. So I'll look forward to the new bridge, even though I don't tend to cross that way too often. Yeah, the lanes apparently will be 10% wider and there will be uh, separated bike and pedestrian lanes going in both directions. Apparently, they also have the ability to expand this uh, bridge up to six lanes. I don't exactly know how they would do that, but I, I think I saw the initial engineers, uh, ideas is they like cantilever out the sides a bit. Ah. So they can just stick another lane on the outside and widen it that way. Oh, fun stuff. What, what probably would happen is the current pedestrian bikeway would become the third lane and then the cantilevered yeah. portion would be the new pedestrian bike. Yeah, exactly. So good to see that start work. The yeah. demolition of the old bridge will take place after the bridge opens in 2023-2024 and there will be some new realignment and extensions of Scott Road creating a direct connection to King George Boulevard uh, in order to connect with westbound lanes of Highway 17 as well. Finally, a new social housing project near Vancouver City Hall is underway. Yeah, this is a neat project by Purpose Driven Development that's working with the Soroptimist International of Vancouver group. Essentially, it's a charitable, nonprofit social housing program that is notable for being the first possibly social housing development entirely delivered by an all-woman team. Uh, so this project is being spearheaded by a woman named Carla Guerrera, who is the CEO of Purpose Driven Development. It is going to be redeveloping a property on West 13th. So this is going to be a 13-story building replacing an existing building at the site where there are 21 studio and one-bedroom Units, there will now be 135 studio, one bedroom, two bedroom, and three bedroom units targeted at rents between $450 and $800 a month, significantly more affordable than most of the city. Uh, this project will be targeting senior single mothers and their children and working women. So I think this is a fantastic, fantastic project, particularly since 50% of the units will be rent geared to income levels with an income maximum set at housing income levels. This is one of those kind of projects where Feels like it could have been more. Yeah, it definitely could have been. And and maybe Seroptimist and Purpose Driven Development had financial constraints or, or they just sort of felt that this is what their client base was looking for. But it, 13 stories isn't that high. It's not even that high for the neighborhood. This is right near City Hall. There are plenty of tall buildings around there. It's kind of ridiculous that we we didn't get a larger 
building out of this. It, it seems like this is City Hall being kind of half a loaf. Well, and as I kind of look at it, it is replacing an existing semi-affordable building and not really, which Upscale. is unfortunate, right? It, do, it doesn't yeah. upzone much of the city that could be expanded. So this is a great project. I would love to see more of it. It's just, come on, council, let's, let's make this happen everywhere. Yeah, it could have been on the site of a single family lot. It could have been on the site of a, a small apartment rather than a already affordable building that was housing 21 units. Those 21 units are, you know, obviously going to be deducted from that 135 uh, as new units. Plus, those people are going to be displaced, which is unfortunate. Their rezoning was approved on July 13th, and they're expecting to begin construction next August. So good luck with that project. Well, at the end of every episode, we like to end with a little bit of uh, history about where we are at that particular time. Normally, we call this Vancouverada, uh, but since I am out on Pender Island, we thought we'd give you a little bit of the history of Pender Island. Now. Pender Island was, uh, as mentioned earlier, the traditional lands of the Sawa people. There has been some dispute over who exactly has the hunting and fishing rights around Pender Island based on whether or not this was included in one of the Douglas treaties or not. Our 19th century maps were notably great in the fact that, you know, Point Roberts was entirely missed by the cartographers of the era. Yeah. Also, there seems to be like some different dispute as to whether or not Pender Island was one or two islands. Pender Island is also the home of a cairn marking, one of the oldest archaeological excavation sites anywhere in British Columbia, was a, a midden and settlement area that has been excavated. Also, Pender Island is home to one of the first olive groves in British Columbia. Yeah. Apparently, this farmer, Andrew but started Waterlea Farms, planted olive trees in 2001 using varieties from California and really wanted to get made in Canada extra virgin olive oil to be a thing. I don't know how successful he's been since. Like there are a few spots in Canada where you can grow olive trees, most of them in British Columbia because you need that temperate Mediterranean style climate. But I think most of the places in Canada that can do that instead grow wine and grapes, which are much more profitable, I would suspect for the same amount of effort. Yeah. But Pender Island has been a site of a apparently surprising amount of industry, including a brick making enterprise, a herring saltery, a fertilizer plant and a cedar shake roofing company. And of course, logging. And it's just a nice place to visit. I hear it is spectacular. If you get a chance, you should. Uh, come rent an Airbnb over on Pender Island. It is marvelous. Any coyotes there? Uh, no, actually, there are no coyotes on the Gulf Islands. Thus, I uh, am educated by Mr. Thielman. But because it is so excellent, I think I am going to sign off and say till next time to every one of you delightful listeners of the Canby Report. Thank you very much for joining us today. From Pender Island, I am Matthew Naylor. And from Coquitlam, I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon.